You're listening to The Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Supernatural. Hi again. If this is your first time listening, thanks for joining us. And if you've listened before, thank you and welcome back. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we'll be talking to a different thought leader. You'll hear me interviewing some of the most interesting and extraordinary people in the culture today. And you'll also hear a lot from my chief content officer at Goop, Elise Lunin. I know I'm biased, but I think Elise is the best interviewer around. Today, Elise is sitting down with Ellen Hendrickson. Ellen is a clinical psychologist based in Boston. She earned her PhD at UCLA and completed her training at Harvard Medical School. Ellen has become known for helping people through anxiety, which she wrote a book about. It's called How to Be Yourself, Quiet Your Inner Critic and Rise Above Social Anxiety. If you've ever felt inauthentic or struggled to be yourself, and we all have, I think and hope you'll get something meaningful from today's conversation. The other lie anxiety tells you that you can't, you're not capable, you can't handle this. And so by trying things a little at a time to, you know, dipping your toe in the pool, not necessarily doing a cannonball into the deep end, but kind of inching your way into the pool, you can gather evidence that you can do this. And when you, I always say, when you see yourself doing it, you start to believe you can. We'll get to Elise and Alan in just a minute. It's been estimated that billions of pounds of water are shipped around the world daily to bring us the traditional cleaning products that we've come to rely on. But Supernatural is working to change that. Supernatural is a new, sustainably driven home cleaning brand flipping the industry on its head. Their products are made with essential oils and plant-based ingredients. We're big fans of Supernatural at Goop, and our readers are too. When we launched some Supernatural products on the Goop site, they sold out in a matter of hours. Here's how it works. Supernatural ships everything you need in their starter set. It comes with four reusable glass bottles and four home cleaning concentrates. All you have to do is add water. And all of their scents smell amazing, like you're bringing the best of the outdoors in. Go to Supernatural.com and receive $10 off your first starter set using code GOOP10 at checkout. That's code GOOP10. Okay, time for today's chat. So thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to talk with you. Even despite your social anxiety? Well, (laughs) so interestingly, if you had asked me to do this 10 years ago or 20 years ago, I probably would have tried to figure out a way to, or probably would have fantasized about seeing if I could fit outside the, fit out the bathroom window and escape, you know, or (laughs) fantasize that there would be an earthquake and the studio would fall down. But, but these days, after a lot of slow and steady practice, this is fine. You've overcome it. I have. For for this, I I do I, I still have my moments, I do have to say. So around authority figures or famous people, I will get kind of weird and formal. And I still do not like being on camera, but I can do those things. And I think that's the point that is even as you, you know, grow and stretch and move along in your journey that you'll still have your moments, but that's that's okay. Mm-hmm. And as long as we can get to the point where 
we're still going to have anxiety, but it's not going to own us. Right. It's not going to determine the course of our life. That's what's important. So can you loosely define or tightly define however you want social anxiety and, and particularly how it relates to like broader definition of anxiety? Yeah, absolutely. So social anxiety is the perception that there is something wrong with you. And unless you work really hard to conceal or hide that perceived flaw, it will be revealed mm -hmm. and you'll be judged and rejected for it. And a nice analogy I like to use is the experience that most of us have had where we look in the mirror in the morning and there's just something off. Like we're having a bad hair day or we have a big pimple or something is just not what we want to show to the public. And so we'll work hard to try to conceal that. We'll maybe wear a hat that day or mm -hmm. you know, throw on a little extra tinted moisturizer or concealer. And if we can't do those things when we go out in public, we're very self-conscious. Right. And we might try to like strategically comb our hair or do something to hide in the moment. And so that sensation, that feeling of self-consciousness is very similar to social anxiety, except instead of for some external thing, it's for something internal. So it might be for, say, our social skills. Maybe we have the perception. And again, I'm going to emphasize this word perception because it's not true or it may be a grain of truth, but it's not nearly to the point that we anticipate people will reject us for. Mm -hmm. And so it could be our social skills. Like maybe we have the perception that we're boring or that we have nothing to say or that we go blank when talking to people. Or it could be for kind of our entire character, our entire personality, like we're stupid or we're incompetent or nobody wants us here. And so that's that's the internal you know, things that social anxiety wants us to believe. And it can also, of course, be for external factors. So about our, it could be about our appearance. It could be the things I mentioned, like my, my hair is weird or I'm fat or I'm blemished or I'm ugly. And it could also be the signs of anxiety itself. So I'm blushing or people will see that my hands are shaking or that I'm speaking with a quavering voice and I'll be revealed as an anxious freak or something mm -hmm. like that and be rejected for it. Yeah. You talked about extreme self-consciousness and I'm sort of curious of how, I'm sure there's probably research or studies around this, whether that acute self-consciousness, whether it's mirrored and what other people perceive. Like I remember when I first moved to LA, I was living in Venice with my husband and the only nearby gym was Gold's Gym, like the famous Gold's Gym. With And there's still a ton of bodybuilders there. And I was working out there with the trainer and it was a hysterical scene. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I feel so conscious. Yeah, yeah right, totally. Sure. And he was like, girl, there is not a single person in this gym who is looking at you. Like they are only looking at themselves. So I'm curious about like that extreme, how much we actually perceive other people. Absolutely. I'm really glad you asked that because there is a phenomenon called the spotlight effect where we think that we're walking around in this spotlight that everybody is looking at us and judging us and evaluating us. And that's not actually true. And the reason that we think that is because we think that other people are paying attention to what we're paying attention to. So if we're feeling very self-conscious or think that there's something wrong with us and are trying to self-monitor or make sure that that's not being revealed, then of course we're gonna think that other people are looking at that too and, and seeing it. But anxiety is 
not visible for the most part on the outside, that we don't wear our anxiety on our sleeve like we might wear our heart on our sleeve. And so it's helpful to remember that, that mm -hmm. oftentimes no one can tell. No one can tell that you're anxious. And again, that perceived fatal flaw is going to be a hundred times more perceptible to you than it will be to anyone else. Right. So is that sort of in in the process of dismantling it, is that sort of that internal, like, is is it helpful to think about that as an internal reminder? Like, no one cares that I have a blackhead? Absolutely. Yeah. I think social anxiety is driven by perfectionism, mm. in part. We can talk more about other drivers of it, but but a big chunk of it, like if social anxiety were a pizza, several slices would be perfectionism. And so one of my favorite studies, you can tell I'm a big nerd because I have favorite studies, is this classic 1966 study by the psychologist Dr. Elliot Aronson. And in it, he plays one of four audio recordings for participants. And it's a, these recordings are ostensibly of a young man trying out for his college quiz bowl team. And so in the first recording, the guy's pretty solid. He answers fake questions correctly. He has an impressive resume. He's, he's solid all around. And in the second recording, the guy's kind of a tool. He answers most of the questions wrong, you know, doesn't really have much direction, is, is not particularly impressive. Now, the third and fourth recordings are exactly the same as the first and second, with one exception. And that's at the end, you hear the scraping of a chair and the clattering of a cup, and you hear him say, oh no, I've spilled coffee all over my new suit. Mm. And then in the experiment, Dr. Aronson asks each participant, like, how much do you like the participant that you listened to? And aggregated over many, many participants, guess who wins out? The most bumbling person. So the, the guy who, yes, it, who bumbles, who is generally solid, but bumbles. And I thought that was fascinating because you would, I would think at least, that the impressive guy would be like, that's what we, that's what we all kind of have internalized. We think we need to appear confident mm -hmm. and competent. And we put a lot of our energy into trying to appear competent and confident. And whereas instead, if we make little mistakes or have foibles or have a blackhead or things like that, it actually makes people like us more mm -hmm. because we go from being superhuman to being human and therefore being relatable and more likable and people feel they're able to approach us. Mm -hmm. And so I always try to remember that if I make a mistake or if I have toilet paper stuck to my shoe or if I have spinach in my teeth, that this might in fact be a foible that makes people more connected to me rather than this mortifying thing that I should be ashamed of. Totally. And I think that anyone who is perfect or embodying perfection or so extremely charming and charismatic, and it might be that I've had encounters with, like I had a, as as we all do, I had one boyfriend who probably was in the dark triad of personality sure. type. I think we all have. Yeah. And so I am so wary of that sort of extreme charm and polish and how insidious and dark it can be. Absolutely. Whereas my husband now is a total classic social anxiety c case, and he's convinced that no one likes him, which is a total fantasy. He's the nicest guy. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting, the the polarity between even those two. And so I want to go back to sort of the things that feed social anxiety, but in, think, in just following up on this, too, 
I think about my husband and trying to like boost him and I'm probably do the, there are a lot of like, what's the right way to handle a socially anxious partner or child without making it worse. So I'm actually really glad you asked about how to help somebody with social anxiety, because I actually did not address that in the book. And so I've been getting a lot of questions about it, which tells me that this is a need that mm -hmm. people want to help their partner or their child or their friend or, you know, anybody who they love who has social anxiety. So I think what often happens is that if somebody discloses their social anxiety to us, our natural reaction is to accommodate them, is to say, oh, well, then maybe you don't have to go to that party. I, I don't want to put that pressure on you. We want, to, we want to reduce their pain. We want to reduce their suffering. And so often what we'll do is we'll step back and say, oh, well, let's make this easier for you. And therefore, you won't feel that pain. But I think that that's a, a, a natural, wonderful, you know, compassionate reaction. But in fact, what would be really helpful is to help them move forward rather than help them move back, is to be their champion. And so if this is, you know, for someone you, you love and who, who loves you and you trust to say, well, what, how can I, how can I help you? What do you want to achieve? And how can I help you do that? And I think verbally, in terms of what we say to them, there's a real difference between reassurance as in, don't worry, you're fine, or mm -hmm. nothing bad will happen, because we can't, we can't guarantee that. But instead, to, to tell the truth and say, the first few minutes are the hardest, or remember last time you did this, it was tough for about 20 minutes and then you settled in, or you are strong and can do this. So encouragement mm -hmm. without reassuring is, it's a subtle difference, but I think it's really, mm -hmm. really helpful. And, to, and just to talk to them, to ask them and say, what do you want to accomplish? What, like if, it's, if you're the boss at work and you have a direct report who you're pretty sure has social anxiety to say, what do you want to accomplish this quarter? Do you want to try to present in a meeting? Do you want to try to give a presentation? Do you want to be able to raise your hand and contribute? What, what would be helpful to you and how can I partner with you to do this? Or for a child, for example, who might be afraid to talk to strangers to try to come up with some developmentally appropriate challenges. Like, well, why don't we ask the librarian where that book might be? Some little things that, that put some experience and mm. some evidence under their belt that refute the two lies of social anxiety, which are, the first is that the worst case scenario is bound to happen. So one of my clients, for example, thinks that if she says hello to somebody who with whom she's had an awkward interaction in the past that they will yell at her. And so we assigned her collaboratively to to try to do that and see what would happen. And of course nobody yelled at her and she was delighted and relieved to find that that happened. So to to gather some evidence that the worst case scenario doesn't happen and also that you can handle situations. The other lie anxiety tells you that you can't you're not capable. Mm -hmm. You can't handle this. And so by trying things a little at a time to, you know, dipping your toe in the pool, not necessarily doing a cannonball into the deep end, but kind of inching your way into the pool, you can gather evidence that you can do this. Mm -hmm. And when you, I always say, when you see yourself doing it, you start to believe you can. Do you ever sort of urge people to catastrophize too? Because I feel like sometimes like... Okay, so this person yells at you 
and then like, or is that not helpful? No, that's absolutely, absolutely helpful. I'm glad you brought that up because that's, I mean, that's what our anxiety is whispering in our ear that this catastrophe will happen. And so we can, in our minds, argue back to that. You can climb in the ring with your anxiety and say, really, is that, is that true? How, how likely do I really think that is? Like what percent chance is it that someone will yell at me? And so we can, we can argue with it on a logical level, mm -hmm. but also we can do some acceptance around the anxiety to say, okay, anxiety, thank you for trying to keep me safe. I really appreciate that you're trying to help me not get hurt. And at the same time, I'm going to try out this party and go and maybe talk to three people and then I can leave. But I but to, to, to do both some arguing with your anxiety and some acceptance work around that, you know, that I, I acknowledge that these thoughts and feelings and impulses are, are here and behaviorally, I'm going to go do something else. Mm -hmm. So, you know, obviously social, you talk about this in the book, but like social anxiety and shyness share qualities, right? Are they essentially the same thing? Or? Yeah, I think about them on a continuum. So everybody, except maybe psychopaths, <laughs> have had socially awkward moments. And so 99% of us have had that experience where you step on somebody's foot as you're meeting them, or you call them the wrong name, or you spill your drink on them. Everybody's had socially awkward moments. So we can all relate to that. And then as we move up the continuum, 40% of people identify as shy, which is just the everyday way of saying socially anxious. And actually, if you change the question and say, have you ever been shy? So for example, were you shy as a child? Were you awkward as a teenager? 80% of people will say yes. So that's a lot of people who can identify with this concept of social anxiety. And then if we take a few more steps up the continuum, for Americans, at least 13% of Americans will at some point in their life reach a threshold where it interferes mm -hmm. with their life or causes them great distress. So these are the folks for whom, if you're a student, you decide consciously not to raise your hand in class, even if that means foregoing 20% of your class partic participation grade. Or if you are offered a promotion, but turn it down because then it would require you to make presentations. So if it gets in the way of your life, of living mm -hmm. the life you want to live, then it's considered a disorder. Mm -hmm. But wherever you are along that continuum, and, and no matter how many you know, decades you have identified as being shy or socially anxious, there is hope because all, many of these things are learned and can be unlearned or relearned. And like I said, we can gather evidence to the contrary as we move through life and grow and stretch. Right. And is that sort of the antidote to just continually put yourself to sort of talk through the fact that the worst case isn't going to happen and then to push yourself to engage in a finite, maybe it's a finite way. Like you're going to stay at dinner, you're going to go to the party for an hour, you're going to talk to three people, as you said, you're going to introduce yourself to one stranger. It's absolutely a cornerstone, yes. So in the book, I talk about this concept of a challenge list. So trying to identify activities or you know, things that you would like to accomplish. And they don't all have to be you know, big pie in the sky ideals. They can be little things like I'm going to ask the waiter for more ketchup or I'm going to go to a 
party and not stick Velcro-like to the person I came with. I'm going to go out and, and mingle a little bit. So it can be just these little everyday things that we challenge ourselves with. And drop by drop in the bucket, we fill the bucket. Mm -hmm. And that can really make a difference. You asked me, you know, when I first came in, like, how do I feel about sitting down for a talk with you and I've, I've, whom I've, I've never met? And it's fine. It's absolutely fine. And yeah. so I, I am living proof that we can get there. And again, even if we do feel anxious, it's okay. to That, that connects us to larger humanity. Those 80% of people who identify as having been shy, like dispositionally shy at some point in their life. And, and we can move beyond. And do you find that, that it's something that potentially grows with age? I was, I've, been, I've heard this conversation between men, and I know you address this in the book. I've heard this conversation now twice recently about the anxiety and difficulty of making male friendships later in life and mm. sort of a lack of intimate relationships. I've heard my husband discuss it with a friend who's going through a divorce and feeling isolated. And then I heard it at a dinner party. A, a guy friend who I hadn't seen in a while was saying how awkward it is, like in the schoolyard or at, to, to make friends with other dads and how, you know, how awkward. It, it's just yeah, awkward. And so absolutely. is it that we're not put in situation, we're put in situations very infrequently, unless we work in sales or something that's mm. very personality driven, where we don't really have to engage in a meaningful way with people we don't know or make new relationships. Like, does it get harder as we as we get older? I think we're salmon swimming upstream in several ways. One is just the natural process of the lifespan. Over your life, your social circle expands until about age 24 or 25. And then it just naturally declines from there. And this is nothing personal that we as individuals create. It's it's just how our modern life occurs, that after college, it does become harder to make friends because we get sucked into the vortex of career and family and friends, which is a kind of a voluntary uh, elective relationship falls by the wayside. So I think that's that's one. It's just the, the life uh, the life course. Also, I think absolutely, you definitely have a point. And I think men have it worse, but, but many women have talked to me as well about how difficult it is to make friends as an adult. And I don't have all the answers, certainly, but I know for folks who are shy or socially anxious that there are a number of, of concepts that can be helpful. And so one is the notion of repetition, that we have to see the same people again and again on a regular basis in order to build these friendships. Because mm -hmm. it takes, according to the literature, it takes between six and eight conversations, not just high, but conversations before someone considers us a friend. Mm. So there's this distinction between finding a friend, which is what I think many of us with social anxiety think we're supposed to do. We're supposed to walk into an event and walk out arm in arm with somebody we've instantly connected with. I think that's that's actually not a good vision to have. I think that the idea of making a friend, that that finding, rather than finding that diamond in the rough, that the rough is full of potential friends. And it's a matter of seeing the same people mm -hmm. again and again. And this brings me to the second point, disclosing about our own life. We have to give people something to work with. 
And folks with social anxiety, I found, and I can definitely relate to this, often feel like if they talk about themselves, it's somehow selfish. They're making it about themselves. They're putting themselves at the center of attention. There's something unseemly or not modest or self-serving about that. But what happens actually is that then the people we're talking to don't know us and have nothing to work with. So I often counsel people to disclose a little bit about what you're thinking or doing or feeling and to share about yourself, not big confessions, you know, it doesn't have to be deep, dark secrets, but just that there's a song from the gas station going through your head or that you had the <laughs> best hamburger at this place and have you tried it or that you've signed your kid up for piano lessons and the teacher is amazing. And it's, it's, it's all these little, just little things that you're thinking and doing and feeling can spark a conversation because let's take the piano example. Then the person you're talking to could say, oh, I've always wanted to take piano or, oh yeah, I've been thinking about signing my kids up for a piano or just any number. It could go in any number of directions, but you have to give them something to work with. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the second thing. And the third thing that folks with social anxiety don't naturally intuit is that we need to show people that we like them. So mm. we often are so worried that others don't like us that we forget to light up when someone approaches us and says hello or to we don't smile when we're chatting with somebody. And it's not to say that we need to be fake or anything like that, but we do we need to remember that we have to give a little to to get to get something back. And so those those three principles that we need to have repetition to see the same people. So the you know the dads on the playground are a perfect example. That's that's a great place to try to make some friends. It is it is awkward, but that rules out situations like meetups where the crowd changes every time, or you know classes where it's a drop in and mm -hmm. you don't see the same person twice. So rule all those out and try to see the same people regularly to disclose about yourself, to say what you're what you're thinking and doing and feeling, give them something to work with, and to show that you like them. Mm -hmm. Because everybody's worried that people don't like them. Everybody's worried that they're going to be rejected. And so if we offer some reassurance and a big smile or something to the equivalent thereof, then others will feel more comfortable. We'll get right back to the conversation. The Goop brand was built in part to explore how we can make choices that better align with our values and the lives we're leading. For us, this can include which creams, oils, and fragrances we use on our faces and bodies, and it also extends to the products we use to clean up at home. Conventional cleaners can be loaded with toxic chemicals. Many come in packaging that's wasteful, and I don't think they often smell all that good. There's a cloying characteristic to a lot of cleaning products. But Supernatural is changing that. Their sustainable, effective home cleaning concentrates are disrupting the industry in a good way. Supernatural has combined ancient plant wisdom with modern science to create formulas that are made from some of nature's most powerful cleaning ingredients. And they smell great. Supernatural blends bring the best of nature's fragrances into your home, so we can all say goodbye to those cloying, synthetic scents. Supernatural is as effective as you expect and need cleaning products to be. And it's also super sustainable, which we love. You can get $10 off the Supernatural starter set by using code GOOP10 on Supernatural.com. That's code GOOP10. 
I love getting to talk with and learn from female executives at other brands. And I recently got to chat with Jamie Gersh, who is Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer at Old Navy. We hit it off pretty instantly. Jamie has spent 17 years working at Gap and Old Navy, so she's a veteran in the industry. I was particularly excited to talk with Jamie, though, because Old Navy has an incredible track record when it comes to the number of women who make up their workforce and the number of women who serve in leadership positions. Working at Goop, where this is also true, although obviously on a much smaller scale than Old Navy, I think about this a lot. How can we better support women and moms throughout their careers? How can we get more women into positions of power? I learned a lot from Jamie in a short amount of time. And over the course of a few episodes, I'm going to share some of my favorite parts of our conversation. Here is today's soundbite with Old Navy CMO, Jamie Gersh. You mentioned that you had mentors. Was there anyone in particular who sort of stood out who helped you imagine the role that you are in today? Yeah, I mean, I've had so many. I'm proud to say that throughout the course of my career, I can think about so many women that acted as role models for me, and they all behaved differently, but taught me a lot about how I wanted to lead and the belief that you really can have a great family and an amazing career, especially, you know, at the company. But one person that really comes to mind who really inspired me was a woman by the name of Kyle Andrew, and she is now the CMO of American Eagle and Airy. And she used to bring her son, I remember, Bazzi, used to come to our office all the time. He was, you know, four or five at the time. And we had coloring in our office, and he would sit there and color with us. Or she would leave because she needed to go to, you know, do something for her kids. But it was this idea that kids are welcome in the environment or that if you need to leave to do something for your child, it's totally acceptable. And I think that's the way that it's become so embedded in our culture is that, sure, do we have policies that help women succeed, yes, and you know we can talk about those. But I think most importantly is just this idea that in the culture, it is very, very acceptable and, and admired to be seen as a working mom and being able to balance those two things. And I've taken what I've learned from these mentors and really made myself committed to this idea of paying it forward and how do I act now as the role model for young women throughout the corporation to make sure they can see I have three kids, I take them to games all weekend, I run around, you know, just like they they will and still have this amazing career and follow the business and I'm as passionate about driving this brand and business as anyone else. Now back to Elise and Ellen. In terms of friendships, and and I have occasional social anxiety, but it's not one of the pillars of my identity at this point. But I do worry a lot about friendship and whether I I don't have a lot of time for my friends. And they seem to be in similar situations. Like, we just don't see each other very much. When we do, we can pick things back up, but you feel kind of shitty about it. Mm -hmm. And I certainly don't know how much bandwidth I have for new relationships. But what's... What's the pro- what's a healthy social life? What does it look like for an adult? And how many intimate, truly intimate relationships do you need? So the the, the science says that you need you know around three close relationships. But I want to put a big asterisk by that and say that that differs for everyone. You might feel completely satisfied with one person that you feel very close to, or you might feel hungry for for more and 
need six to eight close relationships. And so I want to emphasize that that three that's been found in the literature is an average or is, you know, what just a, something that is commonly cited, but it doesn't mean that that's the magic formula. Fundamentally, whatever makes you happy and content is what you need. So introverts might need fewer close relationships. Extroverts might need more or might need uh, um, you know, many relationships that are not shallow. I don't want to imply that extroverts are shallow, but maybe are not as, as you know, soul connected. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately, it's what works for you. Mm -hmm. How closely are is introversion related to social anxiety or is there no real connection? I mean, as I mentioned, I don't have a lot of social anxiety, but I'm definitely an introvert. Sure. I'm really glad you asked that because many people think that social anxiety is a version of introversion, that it's, it's you know, introversion kind of farther along the same continuum. But it's it's absolutely not that introversion and social anxiety are really kind of like apple and orange. People think they're like tomato, tomato, but they're mm -hmm. they're actually quite quite different. And with introversion, I like to say that introversion is your way and social anxiety gets in your way. Mm. So introverts generally need a lower level of stimulation or get kind of burned out with higher levels of stimulation and prefer to socialize, you know, one-on-one -on -one or with a small group of intimate friends. Extroverts often have never met a stranger and have a much <laughs> higher level of need and tolerance for stimulation. So might do better in uh, an office that is an open plan office is bustling, is like might enjoy parties or performing or something like that. And certainly, you know, do have deep relationships, uh, but might also love mingling or otherwise getting to know, like diving into a room full of strangers and just getting to know them. They're curious mm -hmm. about people and love to just kind of work a room and get to know as many people as they can. Whereas, okay, so social anxiety, by contrast, is about fear. And you can be a socially anxious extrovert. So an example I always like to use is I know a young man who is a teacher and a stand-up comic. So he loves being in front of an audience, but at the same time, he worries that they all are judging him and hate him. So he gets energy from the crowd. He's drawn to the microphone and loves being in front of a lot of faces and at the same time is really worried that they don't want him there. So he's really between a rock and a hard place. It's, it's hard to be a socially anxious extrovert. Mm -hmm. And so fundamentally, you can you can be anywhere, you know, in along the personality spectrum and still be socially anxious or not socially anxious. There are plenty of non-socially anxious introverts like yourself out there as well. Right. And it's interesting you brought up getting your energy, but that's always been my understanding of introversion and extroversion too, that if you're an introvert, you get your energy from being alone and recharging and sort of taking assimilating information and like brainstorming and putting it together. Whereas if you're an extrovert, you get your energy from a group brainstorm, group energy. I always feel like those concepts are not very well understood. Mm -hmm. That because people will, I'm, I'm pretty affable and pretty social. So I think people assume, of course, I'm extroverted, but I actually find it super depleting to be amidst tons of people at the same time. Yeah, I find that I 
at this point in my life, have to strike a balance that I do have to kind of will myself to be on in larger social events. And it is extremely draining. But at the same time, I do get a certain amount of energy mm -hmm. from interacting with people and chatting and getting to know them. And that that is uh, nurturing in a way. So I, I think I, personality fundamentally doesn't change over the lifespan. But I think I have learned to be more extroverted and to see the fruits of extroversion as I've gotten older. So I love your the format of your podcast that it's so short, you know, 11 minutes here and there and like such an incredible wide range of topics on psych psychology. So what what are the most popular episodes? Are there ones that spike where you're like, wow, everyone is dealing with shame or everyone's trying to identify narcissists or what are the ones that have, or is it about social anxiety? And is that what drew you to write your book? Like what, what seems to be the most common or the most resonant? That's really, that's a great question. So I found that the most popular episodes are the ones that resonate with the most people tend to be those that are based on questions we would only ask Google. <laughs> so the things that are a little bit shameful or a little bit dark or a little bit, am I normal? are the ones that resonate most with Interesting. people. Yeah. So is that like, I think you had an episode on how do you define sex addiction? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you handle criticism? Is talking to myself normal? How to, how to handle shame? Things that we would not necessarily ask our best friend, but we're okay typing into a search engine tend to be the ones that do the best. That's interesting. That's so telling. It's so telling. Right. But but the fact that so many people are searching for those things tells us that we're not alone and that it's totally normal. Yeah. One that personally resonated deeply with me because it's, it's I feel like part of my life and everyone's life in terms of general anxiety right now was the one about climate change. That was the hardest episode I've ever written. It Doing the research for that episode actually kept me up at night. I'm sure. Yeah, it was it was really difficult. So I feel like the the, the take home from that episode was to keep on doing the individual actions. So to keep on recycling the yogurt cups, even though it feels futile, but also to lean on the system to to try to lean on people in power and the system like calling your representative or protesting in order to get a larger system to change. Mm -hmm. I think in there you talk about how with generalized anxiety, it's that to remember that emotion is an action, right? I was just with my mom over the holidays and she's obsessed with climate change and deeply morose about it. She's also obsessed with like updating her end of life folder. Like I'm like, do you want to die? Like what is going on? Every time I see her, she's like, here's my updated document for your file to include other things that could potentially happen to me. But anyway, she's going through various hip and knee replacements. And I think she had scheduled a knee replacement and she read the New York article about how we should all be burrowing into Mars. And she was like, I need to cancel. I'm canceling the surgery. I mean, she was totally sincere. I'm canceling the surgery because there is no point. Oh, like, this is that's sad. She, she has a lot of anxiety. But I was like, this is not. I mean, you talk about it in that particular podcast episode. That is not productive. No, because the so anxiety has a tendency to make us worry ourselves into a depression. So mm. the two pillars of depression are hopelessness and helplessness. And climate change pushes those buttons perfectly. Yeah. Because as individuals, it's really easy to feel hopeless around what can I do about this? So the hopelessness of what good is this anyway? Mm -hmm. The world is going to end. And the helplessness of what can I do? 
is there is there anything that I can even do to exert change on this huge problem? And so I understand that what your mom is doing is is not productive, but I totally get why she's doing it. Exactly. And it's 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 kind of fascinating to watch and I have to exercise myself from it. We'll get right back to the conversation. For a lot of people, the European Wax Center is synonymous with seamless waxing. And now we're into them for another reason. Last April, they launched a campaign called Axe the Pink Tax, which they're reprising this April. The campaign empowers women, as well as men, to use their purchasing power for good. If you're not familiar with the concept already, the pink tax is the extra amount that the average woman is charged daily for basic goods and services. There have been a few different groups that have looked at gender-based pricing differences, and it's been estimated that the average woman may be charged more than $1,000 every year simply on the account of being a woman and buying things targeted at women. What's perhaps most frustrating about this is that there is a real lack of transparency. Most women I know don't know that we could be charged more for, say, buying a pink toy or women's deodorant. We deserve better, and the European Wax Center gets this. To learn more and to get involved in the conversation they're starting, head to axthepinktax.com. Now back to Elise and Ellen. Before we end, I did. I also wanted to talk to you about the anxiety and this, again, is probably a whole nother topic for an entire podcast, but the anxiety produced by social media mm-hmm. and the way that we judge ourselves based on the perception of other people's lives and sort of how unhealthy it can be that this projection of perfection is, is I know, really difficult. And, and then it's funny, I feel like people are trying to dismantle that, the people who have sometimes created the perception of perfection but then that'll that's starting to feel manufactured. It, it's really interesting to me, and I always I wonder like what the right what do you think is the health what what's a healthy relationship with social where you can feel engaged in your friends' lives without feeling sad about your own? I, yeah, I think by now we all know that social media is the highlight reel that nobody posts the mundane aspects of life, like changing the cat litter or finding tampons on sale or things like that. Nobody posts that. That is the best. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and and so I think because we have access to our entire lives, including, you know, having the flu and having to clean the toilet, but we don't have access to anyone else's entire lives, that sometimes we forget that, again, this this is the highlight reel. And so we naturally compare but it's it's not a fair comparison because we have access to the highs and the lows and the neutrals, and all we see is the highs on social media. So that's that's the one thing to keep in mind. Then there was actually a study that came out that I really appreciated that asked, how do we use Facebook in a healthy manner? And one of the biggest takeaways from that study was that if we go onto social media, I think we can apply this to any social media platform and lurk, like if we just kind of scroll through other people's pictures and posts and don't participate, we're going to leave feeling worse than Mm. when we logged on. But if we participate, if we comment and we like and we are engaged in the conversation, then that becomes what social anxiety was invented for, is to feel more connected and to stay in touch with the people we care about. 
So that's one thing is to to engage and to to actively, not passively use social media. Interesting. There was another study that I really appreciated because I could resonate with this is that the more tired we are, the more fatigue we report, the greater the likelihood is that we're going to log on to Facebook. Mm. And so to to keep that in mind, because I think if we are using social media as a way to procrastinate from like going to bed if it's 10 or 11 o'clock at night and we're somehow just stuck in this internet rabbit hole and we know we should just log off and go to sleep but somehow we find ourselves opening facebook that that is not good that just like we shouldn't believe anything our brain says after midnight we should just not look at social media after dinner in in my humble opinion so i think to 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 realize the connection between the mood you're in when you get on social media and how you feel during and after. And for socially anxious people who have sort of a warped view of themselves within the context of other people's lives, should they stay away from it altogether? Or do you think that that engagement, liking, commenting can be healthy? That's a great question because a lot of people with social anxiety will say that social media makes it easier for them to engage because they can edit and compose their comment. They don't have to think of it quickly in real time like you would in a conversation. And that can be really helpful to them and be and let them engage. So I would say on the one hand that that can be helpful, mm-hmm. but don't let that be the only way you engage. And to still get out there and practice and have those face-to-face conversations and talk in real time with a real person. And to, again, get that evidence and experience under your belt that nothing terrible is going to happen and you can handle it. Sometimes we have to search those things out consciously, like rather than texting our, I've done this before, like text my husband who's in the house, you know, I should just go upstairs and talk to him or rather than. But why bother? It's so, it's, it's so hard, <laughs> isn't it? These first world problems. And in the office, rather than emailing our colleague who's down the hall to go pop in and say, hey, can I talk to you about something? And that it seems it is it is harder. But fundamentally, I think it's really important. It's so funny because I have recently, more as like a a retro productivity hack, have started using the phone a lot more. Mm. Like I'll call people who have emailed me with a question that where it would be way more efficient just to talk than to email back and forth 50 times. And so I'll call them and they'll say, hello? Like Like it's so odd to get a phone call. But to the person, everyone I've done this with has said, Thank you so much for calling me. This is so much better than just emailing back and forth. And I really appreciate it. And that blew me away. So I recommend that as a way to kill many birds with one stone. You can talk in real time. You can get things done more efficiently. It's, it's, I, I'm, I'm a new convert. A good muscle to keep exercising. Exactly. Before we leave. What are the superpowers of social anx- socially anxious people? Ah, I'm so happy you asked that because social anxiety, we usually you know think of as this negative thing. But in fact, it is a package deal. It comes bundled with some really wonderful traits. Folks with social anxiety or who are shy are often highly empathetic. They can connect mm. and feel uh, they can connect really well with other people. 
they are actually gifted at remembering faces, which is an interesting stat. Uh, they're really good listeners. They're highly conscientious, which means that they're responsible and dutiful and the kind of person you want to be friends with because that friend is going to show up or to, you know, to do what they say they're going to do. And just it's this lovely package deal that is, you know, not just centered on the anxiety. And as a bonus, as you work to lessen that social anxiety, those other good traits are not going to go away. You can shrink the anxiety and those other uh, good parts of that package deal remain. That's kind of amazing. It is. And this explains why my husband will literally be watching a commercial and he'll say, that's the person from some really random movie in the 80s. It is a superpower. He can can remember faces. There you go. He can remember faces. Yes. Thanks for listening to Elise's conversation with Ellen Hendrickson. I hope that everyone is feeling a little more calm now. I know I am. You can learn more about Ellen's work at goop.com slash the podcast and at ellenhendrickson.com. You can also listen to her own podcast, Savvy Psychologist, and check out her book, How to Be Yourself. Now it's AMA time. How do you ward off negative things people say to and about you on social media? I just don't really read the comments. I don't find that kind of criticism very helpful or constructive, so I tend to just stay completely away from it. If you have a question you'd like me to answer here, send it over to Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening to the Goop podcast. We hope you'll be back next week on Tuesday and Thursday. To keep up, tap subscribe. And please let us know what you think. You can rate, review, or hit us up on social. For more, just head to goop.com slash the podcast 